Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday to you, or as uh, Norma Wilcox told me in first service, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Weather feels a little bit more that like that today. Uh, We come together, and um, this is Palm Sunday, where we um, think about the time in the life of Jesus where he rode into Jerusalem to shouts of acclamation the week before his crucifixion, but also Palm Sunday was the day he rode into the temple and overturned the tables in confrontation. The uh, Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer says this, he says, truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation, loving confrontation, but confrontation nonetheless. And here's my question for you this morning. Are you willing to look someone in the eye to confront them in love? Or is that the scariest thing that you could ever imagine doing? I think sometimes the hardest thing that that we can try to do in our, especially kind of our tolerance-saturated society, is to point out someone's fault. But the love of Jesus will not allow us to overlook sin. Or hurt? And the question is, are we willing to overlook it? Uh, About a month or so ago, um, some of you know my wife and I went on a vacation together. We went on a a cruise vacation, which we had been waiting about 10 years to do. So those five days were about 10 years in the waiting, and we finally got a chance to do it, and we were excited about it. So uh, we we got on a boat in Florida, and we stopped at one place in Mexico along the way where they have these things called excursions. And so we went out and did what was called the Manatee Experience. I don't know if you know anything about manatees or not, but um, they're, they're pretty docile animals. They're called the cow of the seas. They are... <laughs> I assume the awes are for the weird guy in the uh, sunglasses. No. But they're kind of big. I mean, they could be like 1,000 pounds, 1,200 pounds, up to 10, 12 feet long. They're, they're a little bit intimidating to be around, but they're so docile. So we got into this kind of caged area of uh, of the ocean and uh, we were able to swim with them and feed them and, you know, just interact with them like that. And, and things seemed to be going fine, except that at this particular time, there were just two people in the caged area, Jody and me. There were four manatees. And so the uh, sort of instructor said, why don't you just swim on out in the middle of the, of the caged area and just take this lettuce and feed them. Okay, no problem, you know. Except one of those four was the alpha male. I think his name was Angel or something like that, as I recall. Not the right name. Uh, Jody mostly handled him pretty well. Uh, I had a lot more trouble when he swam my direction because he wanted that lettuce. So he would knock the other manatees out of the way. He would use his flippers and pull down on me to get closer to the lettuce. One time, when, uh, when I apparently wasn't feeding him fast enough, uh, he chomped down on my forearm. Luckily, no front teeth. And I got so f- just frustrated with this manatee. I thought he was going to drown by a sea cow, you know. And I just, I just put my arm in his back and just held him at arm's distance until I could at least kind of resituate myself. And we, the worst part is we paid for that experience. <laughs> Oh, man. Now, you might expect aggressiveness or selfishness from a wild animal. 
But you probably don't expect that from a mature believer in Jesus, right? And yet, it happens. When we are hurt by a fellow Christian believer, can we just admit that many of us, what we like to do is is push him away, like I was doing that manatee. Boy, you just like to uh, refuse to face the facts. We swallow our anger or our resentment. You know, we we, uh, act as as if everything's normal, maybe seething with rage inside, or we try to avoid the situation. We try to push that person away, keep them at arm's length, pretend that they don't exist. But that, that can actually kill people, even a church family. If another Christian has been aggressive or selfish or bullying or dishonest or immoral or offensive in some way to you, nothing is gained by creating a fake peace without confronting the real evil that's been done. But that's tough. You know, when this happens, uh, even within the church, marriages suffer, children rebel, neighbors feud, churches can even divide over issues. Or at an even bigger scale, we see it in the news all the time. When things are left unreconciled, things like mass shootings happen or bombs detonate. Sin steals life. But the love of Jesus can't abide for life to be stolen from anyone. So to save a life, we must confront. Today we're continuing in a series we began last week in Matthew 18, uh, a short series called How to Save a Life where uh, I know when you hear that title, you probably think, well, that's, that's for firemen or nurses or police officers or someone, but not me. And yet, Jesus says, you can do this. You can save a life. And you can do that in our text today by calling a brother or sister on the carpet. So let me remind you of this, this ruthlessly practical pathway Jesus lays out for how to do this life-saving act of confrontation. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Matthew 18 which is on page 799 in those Bibles in front of you, or you can follow along in the YouVersion app. It just a, a very simple pathway for how to confront, how to save a relationship in reconciliation. Step one is what I'll call a private conversation. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 15 of chapter 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now, this is fun teaching, isn't it? Uh, Some of you, I guess, um, probably have a little bit more uh, confrontational nature to your personality. Some of you may even love a verse like this. You're like, yes, this is me. And I wonder, just by show of hands, how many of you, you're okay with conflict? You sort of tell it like it is. Uh, How how many of you, okay, there's like five, six, okay. Okay. More coming up, seven, okay, good. First service, there was like two. How many of you, though, on the other side of that, you, you don't, you hate conflict. You run away from it. You don't want to have anything to do with it. How many of you are more like that? Okay. And you don't even want to raise your hand right now, <laughs> lest you cause offense and somebody confront you. I get it. But Jesus wades into this topic. And what I want you to see, there's some specific context to this and some boundaries here. Uh, first of all, notice that the first half of this chapter, we looked at some of that last week, describes how disciples of Jesus must first discipline themselves. He talked last week, and as we looked in Matthew 18, about if your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Ruthlessly deal with sin in your own life first. 
But when we do that, when we're serious about sin, we recognize it hurts other people and other people hurt us. And now we have to become our brother's keeper. We have to bear one another's burdens. So, notice the boundaries Jesus puts around this. First of all, in this teaching, it is only the Christian he's referring to whom we must confront. If your brother or sister, that is the person in faith, sins. This is not, this teaching is not an open invitation to go around correcting the moral behavior of everyone in Springfield. As much as we may want to do that or tempted to do that. That's not what this is about. Uh, Paul himself once asked this question to the Corinthians in this line. He says, um, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? He said, God will judge those outside. But inside the church, our baptism unites us. We are family in the blood of Jesus. So when a Christian brother or sister does something hurtful, something sinful, something wrong, it is our duty to confront that person, the reputation of Jesus, his church's ministry, even that person's own life of salvation hangs in the balance. That's why Paul, again in Corinthians, says, are you not to judge those inside, that is inside the church? The answer is yeah. Uh, second though this confrontation jesus talks about should only be concerning sin if your brother or sister sins that is sins against you this is somebody they've they've deliberately hurt you by uh, an act contrary to god's word they've deliberately taught something against you they um, are, are people who whose greed runs over you they treat you less than human there's an adulterous situation in your relationship with someone else they steal from you they lie to your face they dishonor god they're a business owner who is exploiting you as a worker They are an influencer who are cultivating hostility about you. They're sinning against you, damaging you, hurting you. Listen, neutrality with that person is not love. It's neglect. And so the life-saving responsibility is to go and point out their fault just between the two of you. To host a private audience to literally convict or convince them of their sin. The action and the environment are important here. But there's a lot of ways that we kind of go off track with this, I think, isn't there? If someone hurts you, what's the often the the kind of knee-jerk first reaction that you do when somebody hurts you? Think about that for a second, or if you're sitting next to somebody, why don't you take just a minute and just kind of verbalize that and say, hey, here's what, here's what I do, or here's what I've seen people do when somebody gets hurt. This is kind of the first knee-jerk reaction that they do. And in fact, if you're angry at the person next to you, maybe you could say, that's why I'm doing these things, you know? Think about that. Well, what's the knee-jerk reaction for this? You go and gripe to a friend about it? Gripe to your spouse about that person. Kick the dog. Maybe even the silent treatment, you know. Maybe you're not talking to the person sitting next to you right now. Maybe post it on social media. Or you write an anonymous note. What I find is what we often do is we try to build a case against the person instead of confronting the person. Uh, This is in part what Mark Sayers, the author, calls the passive-aggressive consumer trap, where he basically says, everyone has opinions, but no one really has any skin in the game, so what they do is they complain to other people to try to get things the way they like without ever having to do the hard work of conversing face-to-face with the one 
that they have trouble with. But notice Jesus doesn't tell us to talk to other people when a brother or sister sins against us. He says, have enough respect to go to the person just between the two of you and have this conversation. How many times would conflict be constructive if the first step was to talk to the person themselves instead of what is often the case, that's the last step that happens. Think about a case study of this in uh, the Old Testament between uh, Moses and Pharaoh, for instance. It's not exactly the same, but you remember uh, the movie Moses and, and Pharaoh and the Ten Commandments. If you've never seen the movie, it'll probably be on this week sometime, I think. But Pharaoh obviously had done some things against the people of Israel. He'd sinned against them. He is exploiting them. And so God tells Moses to confront him face to face. And Moses does. And he tells him, hey, you are killing these people. You are sinning against us. Let us go worship God in the desert for three days. In other words, let us rest. Give us space. Give us dignity. Moses, I noticed, in that whole uh, process did not uh, begin a whisker, whisper campaign against the king. He did not post Pharaoh's sins to his Instagram story. He did not passively, aggressively offer this as a prayer request in his Sunday school class or his journey group. He did what God told him to do. Exodus 7, verse 15, confront him on the bank of the Nile. And I wonder, would you exhibit the same Christian boldness to do that? Could you do that to save a life? Now, we all know there are times when you go and you talk to somebody one-on-one and that doesn't lead anywhere. So Jesus offers a second step in verse 16 to engage a wise group, small group of people. He says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Not everybody's going to respond to a loving personal confrontation. So Jesus says, invite some others along. Two or three fellow believers, lots of integrity with the goal. The goal is forgiveness. The goal is mercy. The goal is to save a life. And this group was so important in that day. The rabbis in Jesus' day took this principle of a couple of witnesses so far. They said that one eyewitness was not sufficient even if the eyewitness caught a murderer with a bloody knife in their hand. There should be two or three to corroborate the story. So this this small group, it requires patience and discernment. It protects the person accused so there's no hostility, but it also seeks to bring that person back into the path of Jesus. Paul would write it this way in Galatians 6. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person, look at the word, gently. But watch yourselves. Or you also may be tempted, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Is that your posture when you are hurt? I think about the case study, another illustration from Israel's history. Uh, In the book of Joshua, it tells the story of the the people coming into the promised land, and there's war, and there's battle, and, and there's two and a half tribes among the nation of Israel that want land east of the Jordan River. And so when all is said and done and they've, they've battled around, those two and a half tribes finally separate from the nation and they go back to the east side of the Jordan River and on the way they build an altar. And the rest of the nation is enraged. We have just spent years battling these people and cleaning this land out from foreign altars and now you have the audacity to build an altar on your way back and they see red and they want to go to war with their own family. But first... 
Before the sword starts swinging, Phineas the high priest and a few of the wise leaders of the tribes go and confront those two and a half tribes. Joshua 22, verse 16. Notice, they don't pull any punches in this conversation. How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against Him now? I mean, this feels like a real housewives of wherever reunion show, right? How dare you do this? How could you do this? But once they confronted them, the two and a half tribes were able to clarify. Joshua 22, verse 22. The mighty one, they say, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel know. Here's the translation. Uh, one translation, it puts their explanation this way. Verse 24. That's not it. We did it. We built that altar because we cared. We were anxious lest someday your children should say to our children, you're not connected with God, the God of Israel. And you see, that group confrontation led to clarification and ultimately reconciliation. The rest of the nation, when they heard the report, in verse 33 says, they were glad to hear the report and praise God. And they talked no more about going to war against them. And I wonder what bloody war could you avoid if you did this life-saving action of confrontation? What bitter feuds, what long-standing grudges or rivalries could you release with some confrontation in the way of Jesus? Now be careful because sometimes the battle that you're released from in this act is actually a battle within yourself. The author uh, Cheryl Richardson said it this way, if you avoid conflict to keep the peace, you start a war inside yourself. So is there someone that you must confront, maybe with a wise friend or two? And yet even in that, there are some that there will not be reconciliation in that process. So Jesus takes it a step further. And he talks about a caring community now in verse 17. If, If they still refuse to listen... After this sin, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now the grievance goes public. If the sinful person refuses to repent, the entire church must be warned so that that rebellious person has no place to hide, no one else to hurt. They've now had three opportunities to repent of this sin, uh, but at this third time there's no response, then the individual dissociates themselves from them, but still, notice, the, the, the hope is rehabilitation and reconciliation. It's not retribution. Jesus says, treat them as you would a, a, a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, treat them as you would someone else who is not in an active relationship with Jesus Christ. Share with them the mercy and love of God. Call them to repentance in Jesus' name. Uh, Paul says it a little bit differently in 2 Thessalonians 3, but with very similar intent. He says, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed, yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. See, notice Jesus is inviting us into reconciliation work. That's why we confront, so we can be united. But notice also in this that Jesus doesn't single out church leaders to do this alone. A lot of times in the church family, just to be honest, there's conflict between people, and our our knee-jerk response is, Brooks, go get them. Elders, go get them. 
But Jesus seems to open this up to the whole church community. You can save a life by confronting people in this pathway. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner says this. He says, A disciplining church will prove more loving in the long run than a church that advertises God's love but then shows no great interest in whether this love is practiced by her members. You can save a life in this love of Christ. Boy, I'll never forget um, the first time I read the book of Galatians in the New Testament. I don't know if you've read that uh, letter before, maybe in our New Testament reading plan you read that. It was jarring to me. I was a high school kid and was trying to read through the Bible. And in my mind, uh, Christians were people who didn't cause problems. They didn't rock the boat, didn't stir up trouble. Uh, They were meek and mild. Uh, Christians smile. They never scowled. And then I read this. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, When Cephas, uh, otherwise known as Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. (laughs) This was not like my Sunday school class growing up. For before, he says, certain men came from James. He used to eat with the Gentiles with open inclusion. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, and he let him have it. Whoa. My church services were not like that growing up. But Paul did it because he loved him. And he wanted to save his life. And I wonder if that same kind of love beats in your heart for those people who hurt you. See, the truth is, Jesus ends this teaching with a promise of this kind of confrontation. And ultimately, I think what he's saying is this matters. Uh, Verse 18, he says, Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This promise of binding and loosing, Jesus had given to Peter in chapter 16 singularly, and now in chapter 18, he's giving it to the group of disciples as a whole. The Christian assembly has the power to bind and to loose, that is to tie up or to untie. The confronted brother or sister who listens to the church's warning is loose, is set free by the church's pardon and forgiveness. The confronted one who flaunts the church's warning and doesn't uh, give it any heed is bound in guilt by the church's judgment. And Jesus stresses that this binding and loosing is ratified by God in heaven. These moments carry the authority of God. This leaks into heaven. Our Father backs us up. It matters. It matters. Even for the smallest of church fellowships, just two or three, Jesus assures us God's blessing and God's presence through this whole process of reconciliation. When people pray in the midst of conflict, just two or three people, Jesus, well, he's already there. You're not alone. I hope your parents or your grandparents hear this when 
a teenager maybe in your life, locks horns with you even though they've grown up with you in the church family and there's conflict there, you're not alone. Pray together. Or if you're in a journey group or a a class of some kind here and you're leading that group and there's somebody in that group, uh, the language usually goes like this, who is extra grace required. Maybe they're not walking in the way of Jesus in some aspect of their life and you need to confront them. Listen, you're not alone. Pray together. I know for so many confrontation it's not easy. And maybe you're thinking as you hear all of this, yeah, that sounds like good steps, Jesus, good teaching there. Maybe you're nodding your head in agreement. Sure, that sounds very wise. Uh, you might even later say, nice sermon preacher. But, but here's my question. What are you going to do when someone in this assembly gashes you open with sinful intent and you see red? Are you going to run away? Are you going to rationalize it away? Are you going to push him away? What are you going to do? Or will you tell people what they need to hear? Will you walk this path of reconciliation with Jesus? Will you pray together? Will you, instead of fighting for revenge, will you fight to reconcile? Will you be bold and confront in the name of Jesus? Because you see, the opposite of confrontation is not compassion. The opposite of confrontation is cowardice. But you're not a coward. I know you're not a coward. You wouldn't be here if you were a coward. I don't know about you, but the names haunt me as they stack up in the news. I don't know if you've paid attention or have heard these things, but people like Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Church, decades of fantastic ministry in the church, Changed the way the church thinks in America about how to disciple people. Has resigned over the last year or so in the midst of accusations, several accusations of sexual harassment and inappropriate conduct. James McDonald of Harvest Bible Chapel, no longer part of that church. Accusations of abuse and manipulation, power used wrongly. Other names, Mark Driscoll or Perry Noble or even unnamed folks. A recent report of 35 Southern Baptist Church youth volunteers who had been convicted of of sex crimes or uh, sexual misconduct over the last two decades were able to continue working with children and youth in churches. You've heard the stories. You know the pain. Death can creep into a church. Unless someone steps up. Someone like you. James ends his book this way. I love the language. He says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Look at how he says this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death. And cover over a multitude of sins. Who is willing to save a life? If you are, then I hope you'll care enough to confront someone in the way of Jesus. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you are the truth. You are the life and you are the way. And 
We remember a day, a Palm Sunday, where you had to confront men and women who were walking in the wrong path. Help us to be a people like you, concerned enough about the truth and about love that we confront sin where we see it, gently and in your way. Father, help us to be a people who speak to one another truth in love and who tell each other what we need to hear. Help us always to do it in the grace, the mercy, and the reconciling spirit of our King, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.